Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking with Dr. Roger Kerry about his chapter 13 titled Causal Dispositionism and Evidence-Based Healthcare. Roger is an Associate Professor in the Division of Physiotherapy and Rehabilitation Sciences at the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at the University of Nottingham. And he specialises in risks and adverse events of manual therapy, neck pain and headaches, as well as clinical reasoning. And Roger holds a PhD in philosophy with his doctoral dissertation, Causation and Evidence-Based Medicine. So on this episode, we talk about Roger's background as a physiotherapist, educator and researcher, and how causation is featured in these areas of his work. We talk about the development of Course Health, of which he was a founding member. We talk about his experience of embarking on a PhD in philosophy and how this related to the Course Health project. We talk about the inferential gap or problem of induction, and relate this to the nature of clinical reasoning and clinical expertise. We talk about what is the best evidence in relation to a dispositionist view of evidence-based practice. We talk about whether there is objective truth in healthcare. And finally, we talk about what we do with RCTs when adopting a dispositionist framework, and how this theory may change or support our clinical and research methods. So this was an absolutely wonderful discussion with Roger. Like many of the guests in this Cause Health series, I've been wanting to have him on the podcast for ages, and it was well worth the wait. You'll hear him say at the end of our chat that it was like going three rounds with Mike Tyson, but the feeling was completely mutual, given the ground that we'd both covered in our conversation. This is a real treat. So I bring you Dr. Roger Kerry. Roger, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Ollie. Thank you for having me. I had to have you. You're one of the, the authors of the chapter. I had no choice. <laughs> if you had had a choice, it would be very different, I guess. I would have spoken to Matt for the fourth time and probably Rani for the seventh. Yeah, I heard you were getting Matt for his, uh, what, what do you call it? Qu- uh, quadrilogy. Quadrilogy. Qu- quadrilogy. Yeah. quadrilogy, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we're here to speak about your chapter 13 of the Course Health book titled Causal Dispositionism and Evidence-Based Healthcare. So for those that don't know you, can you introduce yourself and your academic and clinical background? My name's Roger Kerry and I'm from, I'm a chartered physiotherapist based in Nottingham in the middle of England and I'm actually from near Nottingham, Nottingham, Derbyshire border. I work at the University of Nottingham mainly, trained up north somewhere, worked up north, Yorkshire way. And uh, yeah, so a bit of everything really, education, a bit of uh, scholarship and research, clinical practice, 
and obviously some sort of uh, interest in in evidence based healthcare and also of course philosophy of science which i did my phd in hence why we're here with unlucky number chapter 13 <laughs> that's true i hadn't thought of that but at what point did you become interested in evidence based practice and i can imagine the philosophy came on a bit later but when you were a, a junior physio what sorts of what thoughts did you have around evidence based practice how did that feature um, I guess it, without stretching the story back too far, I guess it starts earlier than, than when I was a junior physiotherapist. I remember a a, te- a a teacher of mine, he was a very quiet chap, not a lot of people got on with him, but um, when I was younger, before university, he gave me a, he gave me a, a book about Karl Popper, I had no idea who it was. And I read that and I was fascinated. And then um, I was I became fascinated with the philosophy of science and how science works or doesn't work and the scientific method. And um, but specifically towards evidence based medicine as it was, I do I do remember quite clearly two two sort of critical incidents when I was training as a physiotherapist at Pinderfields, which is in Wake, Wakefield, and. Um, during it must have been the first year we we had a module which was called something like methods of inquiry which is finding out stuff and we had a um we had a lecturer come in he wasn't a physio he was a nurse keith ward i think he was from barnsley or Dewsbury <laughs> or something and um it was quite a character and he he so this would have been it would have been either late 1992 or early 1993. But anyway, he stood there in front of us and he said, look, something's just happened. Look, something's just happened. There's this thing started called evidence-based medicine and a guy in Canada wrote uh, with a bunch of people has just published this paper and I want you all to read it. And, of course, it was Gordon Guyatt's seminal paper and the, and the McMaster group, the evidence-based working group at, at McMaster, and it it sort of made sense and made no sense. Given a, um, a bunch of first-year physiotherapists, this paper that had literally just been published that's talking about the, the stuff he was talking about. And I was like, I was sort of half blown away, half, I don't, I don't know, incredulous about it because I, I sort of couldn't quite understand some of the history, sort of understood what they were saying. It sort of made sense or didn't make sense. And that really, so so from very early on in my physiotherapy training, we were we were sort of coached into thinking about this brand new thing called evidence based uh, medicine, which is which was um, you know put 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 thoughts in our heads. I don't know about anybody else, but certainly mine. And then the other thing that happened very close to that was a a very good friend of mine who I trained with and, and lived with uh, a Norwegian physiotherapist called Hans Ektvet. He went back on, after, after our first year, he went back to Norway in the summer holiday. When he came back to Wakefield at the end of the summer holiday, he had a copy of this thing with him, which is called Manual Therapy. And it was the very first edition of the, of the Manual Therapy Journal, as it was then. And he said he went to a little conference in Norway, in Oslo, over the summer, and he picked up this free copy. They were giving out these free copies of the very, very first edition of Manual mm-hmm. Therapy. And I looked at it, I had no idea what it was. I looked at it and the very first article in there was um, Mark Jones's article on clinical reasoning and pain. Hmm. 
And I read that as a second year physiotherapist and I, <laughs> I was blown away again. And then I, was, I spent, well, I suppose I spent the rest of my career trying to reconcile those two positions of evidence-based medicine and clinical reasoning. And I can sort of, I can see how they relate at some times and that they're, they're totally different at other times. And I guess, you know, that that is still what, what is happening now. So trying to make some sense about how we're supposed to operate in a, in a model of evidence-based healthcare as well as the principles and foundations of clinical reasoning. And that and that's sort of driven me all the way through, as I say, to roughly where we are now. And so when Mr. Ward from Barnsley put the paper on your desk and said, there's this new thing, I'm, I'm not going to try a northern accent, but you know, there's this new thing from Canada called evidence-based <laughs> practice, and you read it and you kind of began to read it, were you like, hmm, doesn't seem quite right. You know, RCTs, causation, like there are assumptions around causation, something doesn't seem right here. Or were you quite just taken with it? Were you, those kind of thoughts you've subsequently developed around causations and and the limitations with RCTs, and that's obviously matured and, and developed later on? I suppose it was a bit the opposite, really. It, it was like... Um... Well, of, of course, why wouldn't, why wouldn't it be like this? Why wouldn't you make clinical decisions based on the best of available evidence? Bear in mind this was four years before Sackett's paper that talked more explicitly mm. about, about the, 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 the model. But it, it was sort of, well, you know, to, for, for, for Keith Ward to say there's this new thing, it was like, well, yeah, but it may, why is it new? Because it just intuitively, this makes sense. All this, all these guys are saying is if you're going to make some big clinical medical decisions, use the best of the evidence and they, they sketch out what the evidence would be. And bear in mind at that stage of our training, we didn't really know any, any difference or other than... I, I don't know. I guess it's it's so it's so long ago, is it? I, I, I try and think what 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 did we think when we went into these training yeah. programs about sources of evidence? I guess I was thinking something like, I can't wait to go on this three year course because I'm going to get some some blokes and women show me everything they know, and I'll be as good as them one day, and that and that's how it is. And then and then um, suddenly uh, it's a well. Actually, there's some limitations to that. There's better ways of understanding the the way the world works. And, of course, I'd read Popper, so it made sense that the scientific method should be a, a sound sound basis for clinical yeah. decision-making. And and I think I was... I, I think I was quite strong towards that in the presence of lots of peers and colleagues throughout my training and early years as a physio, who who were questioning that, and I and I'd be I'd be flying the flag for RCTs and and evidence based medicine, and then I guess I had this period where where that was shaking a bit with my experience with the multi center RCT, when I started to question things a bit, and then start to look a bit you know revisit the philosophy of science and and then think hold on a minute there's there's more there's more to this it's not as simple my enthusiasm was perhaps over enthusiastic towards it and I get and I think that I think that is what happens you know we we want something solid and we want something to be clear and and simple and that wouldn't it wouldn't that be beautiful if it worked perfectly you know this idea that you've got this set of methods that produce outcomes 
that can then feed into your clinical decision making and then that unfolds and impacts on your patients and everybody gets better and everybody's healthy in the world and there's no more disease and blah 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 wouldn't that be brilliant if it worked so I guess my justification for being over-enthusiastic is that I wanted it to yeah. be the case. I wanted all this stuff to work. And then with time and reflection, you you start you do start to question things. We all get carried away when we go on a new course or we learn a new thing, don't we? Like you go and you know, you're going to your CPD course on the weekend, Monday you go into clinic and everyone's, I don't know, everyone's having a stroke from manual therapy or something like that. And I can imagine, you know, when someone presents this kind of theory of practice and it seems so sensible and so obvious and such good kind of face validity like of course I get to 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 marry up knowledge from these different domains to make decisions with the patient that just sounds that's such a good way to practice and I I suppose only since then that people have been asking those questions like well what do you mean by evidence and what do you mean by Mm. judgment Mm. and what is best and what do you mean by patient values and preferences and I guess the scrutiny that the model or the theories kind of rightly come under, probably as a result is where, it, as Trisha Greenhill talked, it kind of went wrong or lost its way mm. or was mm. or was misused. Yeah, and, and I think it was probably presented early on with such authority and such conviction mm. by a strong group of white middle-aged males from this established uh, institute I guess there was a period of time in the in the sort of early to mid nineties when it was it didn't seem right to question it because it, it was it was presented so 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 strongly, and and as you say, it is you know it you know a lot a lot of uh, a lot of this makes sense. I think the thing to throw in right now before we go any further down this line is that the whole cause health thing isn't something that's <laughs> that's anti evidence based health healthcare it's in, in in fact it's you know it is all about evidence based healthcare what we what we're saying is what constitutes the best evidence mm. and we're not necessarily saying the the traditional components of evidence based healthcare aren't you know are wrong or or are things that don't constitute best evidence we we we're, we're trying to extend the scientific portfolio basically and tighten it up somewhat in a person centered way so, but and, and I guess that's and I guess that's the crux of it. The EBM model, or I'd prefer to call it evidence-based healthcare. Now we've moved on a bit because you know it extends out beyond beyond medicine. The the structure of it, the the rules of it, are too restrictive, and they don't allow evidence that is perhaps more meaningful to clinical decision-making. So when I say cause health wants science to be stricter, I don't mean in that way. I mean, it needs more science, in fact, to to inform person-centred decision-making. So we are very pro the idea of evidence-based healthcare and, and scientific methods informing decision-making. But there's, but there's something about going back to, to the basics of science and what science is and reevaluating that mm. in in our in our context in our clinical decision making context. And when you say science, what do you mean by science? Because is it is it people in white coats doing experiments on people <laughs> or or things, or are you taking a broader view of science of any kind of empirical observation within some? 
I say control setting, but you know, look at qualitative research. It's, these are naturalistic studies where people are observed or interacted with. Nothing's there isn't anything controlled in that respect. Yeah. So um, again, a great question, Ollie. And I, I guess I'm taking more of a philosophical understanding of what this, of what science is, and, and, and in fact, thinking of science as the at its most fundamental uh, structure. In, in which case, I would say that the vast majority of research we do in healthcare is not scientific. And that's not necessarily a problem. But I, th- I think we should be aware of that. I think, I think we should be aware of conflating the word research with science. And what I mean by science is, again, a very... And I might sound outdated here, but I'm not because this this is how science is still thought of at, at the level of philosophy of science, that it is something to do with developing a hypothesis and testing it as robustly as possible in order to try and refute that hypothesis. And so take your example of qualitative stuff. So then you might say, well, hold on a minute. If, you, if you're just trying to promote that idea of science, but with the use of different methods to inform person-centered decision-making, then how does something like qualitative research fit in? Um, well, I, I, I guess when we come to talk more about causation, that that, that, that would that will make a bit more sense. But the, there are ways of bringing all, all of those things in. But if we, if we really truly want to get down to, to, um, what's what's the cause of something then then traditionally that's the scientific method that would would be used and i suppose the point i'm getting to is is the rct ebm sort of idea is loose, loosely based on the idea of testing a hypothesis setting up a control situation and trying to, and trying to refute the hypothesis and and that makes rcts uh, um look a bit sciencey but if you talk to a, you know, if you talk to an experimental physicist, they they would just laugh at the idea of an RCT being able to generate an outcome which could then predict a future outcome. Uh, but that's what we, so we use this sort of loose interpretation of traditional science to produce outcomes. But then there's a big leap of faith in the idea that that what we get out of RCTs can then predict something in in the future, which is the role of true science be, being able to predict and i suppose the diff- distinction is the physicist is making predictions about the natural world mm-hmm. we're making predictions about the social world of which potentially the that that context and those variables for want or well, speaking sciencey language those variables are i want to say infinite but that's the wrong word but you know there's lots of them which bounce around and interact yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you're talking about complexity with the, with those numerous variables, and again, uh, you know, a, a, a textbook definition of complexity, which which essentially means there are lots of variables, and the behaviour of one bar- variable will unpredictably affect the behaviour of another one. And the idea of science is to is is to control things as much as possible, so you can start to examine the effect of one variable on another. You know, again, physics, lab science, 
are examples of, of that. And I guess what you're saying is we're trying to do that same thing in an environment where not all of those variables can be controlled and it's a messy world. And the idea of an RCT mm. is to randomly allocate so you you do control for known and unknown confounding, uh, which is the RCT sort of explanation for how it is a bit sciencey. Um, mm. but But then you plonk the outcomes in, into another world which isn't which hasn't controlled and, and there are new variables and there are messy variables and they might have been part of that trial but they're all a, a bit different now but but we still say well it's you know things like well it's what else have you got you know it's as good as you're going to get and um you know it's pragmatic trial mm in which case you've lost some of the control, or it's a controlled trial, in which case you've lost some of the pragmatics. So as I say, it's, a, it's probably the best, an RCT is probably the, the the best method to look for associations between two variables in, in a social world, in a, re, in, a, in a real world. But it's not necessarily the sort of associations we look for in clinical practice even though it looks a bit like clinical practice so so you know manual therapy for for this condition or exercise for low back pain or something two two variables and you can you can examine those associations in a in a randomized controlled trial setting but our question is even so is that is that the sort of information that that is needed at the shop floor level outside of the trial Mm. Or is that the only information that we need on the shop floor level? Or the or the only and and and, and again, you, you're you're absolutely right to sort of pull me up on that because with the point we're getting to eventually is that the multiple sources of information should be brought into to the decision making of which randomised control trial results should should be one. So, do you want to tell us about your experience in the in the trial centre and how some of these ideas kind of bounced around? that experience it wasn't actually i wasn't in the trial center i was working in a i was working in a department which was part which was one of the centers for a trial and i don't know it's just it's just a regular thing i guess that but it made me think about things where we were trying to recruit patients into a low back pain study and there was a fairly strict criteria for recruiting patients no comorbidities no previous history of back pain no previous treatment blah 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 sounds like a good scientific study to me and well exactly you know this is just what you need to do with science control strip everything away control for the complexity and and of course we were hardly recruiting anybody because <laughs> <laughs> nobody's like that so when when one of the um RAs came round or something, and we said, "How many you got?" Well, none. Uh, and and you know that that sort of discussion about you know perhaps if you let people with comorbidities in, you get a few more participants in the, in the trial. And is saying, well, no, because the idea is to to strip everything away, so we so we know precisely what works for for low back pain. We don't want those other things getting in the way. So then you start to think, right, okay, I'm, I'm starting to see a little bit clearer now the difference between a controlled trial setting and the difference between a real world. And we might, 
we might refer to things like external validity. I think a nicer term from Nancy Cartwright is evidential relevance. Uh, you know, the, the the sort of stuff you get in a trial. How relevant is it as evidence in, in another in another setting? But having said all that, even if you even if there was a world where a trial setting and the real world were exactly the same, there is still a classic scientific problem, which is the problem of induction, to get beyond. And with Causalth, we think there's a bit of an answer to that, or at least Rani does. Um, but I, can, I, I like what she's said about the problem of, in, of induction, which... Is that the same as the inferential gap that Matt yeah, Lowe talked yeah. about? Yeah, yeah. So the ecological fallacy, the inferential gap, the problem of induction, how do you get from one point to another point in the, in the future? How do, how do you hold that information when you take it into another, into another environment? This is, this is, again, it's Popper's classic yeah. in, inference problem. And I, think, and I think it was Eleanor that read back a quote to me that Stephen Tyman, Stephen Tyman said, and I, I, I'm going to misquote her and poor old Stephen as well. <laughs> but it's brilliant it, it goes something like and i'm going to get this wrong but it goes something like the kind of problem with clinical practice is that we're making decisions about people using information not about those people and that might be other people in studies or even other patients that you've seen and that's the that's the conundrum i think that how Stephen, i mean it, Mm. How I've completely mutilated his his lovely expression. <laughs> I think you're probably quite close to what to what to what it would have been. I mean, it is. We can talk about this. We can talk about it for hours. And science philosophers and scientists have been talking about it for for millennia. I, I guess it's it's from Aristotle originally. And there isn't a ready-made solution. That's why it's a classic problem because mm. because there isn't a solution to it. If if you your assumption is that the point of science is to predict something in the future mm. so we we are obsessed quite rightly because we want to solve the world's problem we 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 want to make people better that's our that's our job we but we and, and in doing so we get obsessed with finding something that is going to work for something else we we want to find out what works for low back pain and although that might sound like a, quite a valid question, I, th- I think it's the wrong question. And I think that way of thinking is, is um, led us astray and is, is leading us astray because I don't think we'll find such generalizable answers to something as complex as, as, health, as healthcare. But science doesn't need to be like that. Science can still give us some answers to some real-time problems, but you don't necessarily have to take a prediction from that. So in other words, what I'm talking about is if we make a sound clinical decision with with a patient Hmm. and we do it in the, the sort of dispositionalist way or and and there's a good response to that, that we, we as we as dispositionists would wouldn't then say right. So what I did there will inform what I'm going to do with the next patient, because we assume that the causes are context sensitive 
and only tend towards um, an effect and are so dependent on their mutual manifesting mm. partners that you would never say, oh, in my experience, this works, so I'm going to do it again. That's not part of what dispositionalism is or, or, or the cause health idea. So, and that's why we can avoid the problem of induction because we would say there isn't a problem of induction because there is no induction to be made. We're not trying to induce generalizable facts from from our scientific behavior or our clinic clinical behavior but we are still using evidence of causation to inform a particular clinical decision and it might be my misunderstanding of induction but we are inductively reasoning with patients so we are we are thinking about previous patients that pattern recognition where you're saying the characteristics or the cues whatever you describe it you know, within this individual in front of me now this relates or not relates or these these characteristics i kind of remember those in previous patients uh, intuitively with those other hundred patients i kind of did this and it seemed to kind of work this person seems to fit those previous hundred of similar characteristics i'll I'll give that a go that that should work so we are inducing from previous patients right well, uh, yeah, again, so so I think we need to be careful about this because conceptually that is pretty much the same as using evidence from, say, a, a trial or a systematic review, even though different people argue which is which is the best evidence, your clinical experience or, or the trial. But let, let's, um, you know, qu- quite logically, let's say the outcomes of a systematic review, high-quality trials about but that is just inductive evidence as well even though there's been some deductive testing within the trial the idea of a systematic review is to is to accumulate data and say well if this says that and that says that and that says that and that says then this is the case which is just what you said from your clinical experience i've seen this a hundred times but and and then so then that's where the mistake could be in relying on that induction so we've got another patient who looks similar to this and you're the you're the sort of uh, cl- clinical reasoning type person says i've seen i've seen this before but then we wouldn't say i've se- then then the inductive trap is to say i've seen this before so therefore it will work again but we need to add some quality uh, steps in there and revert back to some sort of deductive method i'm i'm using the wrong i'm using non-friendly terminology here in terms of uh, cause health we don't normally ter- talk in this terminology in terms of cause health but but just to get this this point home then we would add some sort of level of deduction by and this is this is what i mean by the clinical reasoner can be a, 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 their own little scientists so we don't assume that the inductive inference is going to work we would then and this is, you know, this is where the patient narrative comes in. So we're testing, we're, we're making our little own hypothesis. So the hypothesis could be, this could could work for you because I've seen it before. But we need to test. I need to test that hypothesis by listening to your story and listening to your values and working out if if there's anything that would facilitate or act as a barrier to this as as being a, a treatment option. So I've tried to say this before. And it's always been difficult. I think the clinical reasoning process is a deductive scientific process. It's actually a combination of different types of logic, deductive, abductive, which can be informed by inductive inferences, but it doesn't rely on that induction. And that, that's, that's the, 
that's the mistake. And it's often seen as a characteristic of expertise that you can rely on that inductive thing. But experts don't actually behave like that. They they flick between the two, I think. So when yeah, things get a bit yeah. sticky or they're presented with an unfamiliar... Or, I mean, maybe what you're saying is that... So, yeah, I mean, the classical clinical reasoning literature says experts or expertise just could have pattern recognised their, you know, their, their kind of way out of... They're just constantly inducting. Novice clinicians just slow and deliberate and systematic and test hypotheses, test hypotheses. And then, but I think what you're saying, or at least what the literature says on, on clinical reasoning, they just kind of flick between the two and inductively der- uh, induce a theory or hypothesis then test the hypothesis some treatment or assessment that kind of thing yeah yeah and those hypotheses may be conscious or, or or subconscious and again it's it's difficult um don't like using the complexity difficulty card as a, as a way out of difficult conversations but the date the data in something like what we do osteopathy physiotherapy health complex health care even though there's some data in surgery which you could argue is might, might be a bit sort of cleaner the data we've got to fall back on an expertise is, is limited. And a lot of the data comes from, again, controlled chessons, you know, the older Simons and Groot studies Erickson. on chess and, yeah, and, and pattern recognition in chess. But again, by, by definition, chess is a fairly controlled um, set, mm-hmm. set up in terms of patterns. We're, we're dealing with a continuously dynamic um, set of variables so we might say right experts in chess can recognize this pattern and make a, a game winning move based on that and then the, the mistake is then to think right so in, in in medicine and healthcare practice we should do the same or must do the same but i don't think a true expert does do that and fernand gobe has written quite nicely on this who's a swiss um psychologist who's written a lot about expertise there are some myths about what constitutes expertise but an expert really should be somebody who is able to to not rely on in use induction but not rely on induction and make those clinical decisions based on like like you say different types of logic at different times using multiple sources of evidence in in order to do that and whilst we're on that point which is because this is another sort of (laughs) When people say, you know, how did you get in into the whole cause health thing? One thing was, it was appealing because it seemed like a better underpinning explanation of the world that would support what we do as clinical reasoners more than than the model of evidence based healthcare could explain all we do, and that that to me was the appealing thing. And I don't think dispositionalism or cause health is necessarily in anything more than that. I think there's some things that will come out of it, like the explanation of perhaps new d- different methods. And But I, I think it, it's very basic for me as a sort of clinician. It just explains better what we do as clinical reasoners than other models of, of, of practice. And so does it explain, and this is kind of rhetorical question does it does it explain what clinicians are already doing or is it a saying hey guys listen this is actually this is this is a better way to think about your patients and think about evidence and think about knowledge or is it just a case that it's like you said it's just better explaining what people are already doing in in practice well i think at one level it does explain a lot of what what good clinicians have, have already done 
Uh, I mean, if you look at, you know, look at the stuff, Mark, the way Mark Jones was writing 20, 20 odd years ago, you you could rewrite that as a dispositionalist sort of thesis. And the same uh, with with Matt Lowe's um, work and his paper on the vector model. In one way, all he's doing is using dispositionalism terminology to explain good practice. But the added benefit of it is then that can translate into something that you can then learn from and teach with and expose other areas for, for progress as, as well. And, and I'm not sure what they will, would be, but I've always anticipated there would be something like an additional or additional methods that we can use in in our pot of scientific methods. I want to ask you about your PhD and how you... Um... I mean, you, you, as a, I can't think of anyone else or no one else brings to mind or no other clinician springs to mind that has fully jumped in with both feet in terms of philosophy apart from you. And so I want to know what was that like? I was introduced to your, your PhD and what it was about and kind of what, what it led to, whether it changed how you thought about yeah, what what role did it play in your current you know, position in relation to causation and evidence-based healthcare? Well, I was actually given a lot of confidence and inspired by Stephen Tyman and his supervisor, Michael Lachlan, because, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what you're classing as both feet and philosophy, but but in my mind, Steve, Stephen was one of the only people I'd heard of who'd done a philosophy type PhD, whether whether you would class that as full full on two feet philosophy. But I suppose he he was the person who, who gave me permission, if you like. Not explicitly, he didn't. He didn't sort of ring me up and say, "Right, go ahead, you can, you can do this." But suddenly, that realization that actually somebody with a scientific, you know, BSc, MSc, could do something outside of the scientific research portfolio of PhDs that people tend to do, and even beyond, you know, qualitative stuff. So, and I was, I was just in a very fortunate position to be able to to do that, supported by the University of Nottingham. And I was able to register in a department of philosophy with a great supervisor who was Stephen Mumford, who was one of the early members of the Cause Health team. And then just a few weeks after meeting Stephen, I met Ronnie because she was a, she, she was a visiting researcher from, from Norway to Nottingham, did a lot of work with Stephen Mumford and... I, I did. I, cause health wasn't even a, a, a thing then, of course. It was, but I, I hadn't really heard or understood anything about dispositionalism. And bearing in mind, dispositionalism isn't isn't a new thing. Again, it's it goes back to Aristotle. But Ronnie was the first one who explained that to me, and this is after I started my PhD, and I didn't know. Where does the term come from? I get the ideas might go back to Aristotle, well, but when. It's 
predates the the, the group by a, a long way. Uh, I mean, Aristotle used the again, Ron <laughs> or the real philosophers out there probably be cringy now. I mean, Arist Aristotle used the the term powers to to relate to um, packages of properties of, of things, which is essentially what dispositionalism is. So so an an entity would have a a power or properties that would dispose them to, to certain behavior. I don't know. I think, I think the term causal dispositionism probably, get, I remember Stephen Mumford gave me a book by Madden and uh, I can't quite remember off the top of my head. There was a, a book probably in the seventies that talked about causal dispositionism. I guess it was even before that, but the term, the idea isn't new. The idea is, you know, in ancient philosophy that, that, um, something the world is made of uh essentially cause, causes are real are real features of the world meaning that causal matter exists as opposed to again going back to an rct you, basically what you've got is two events event a and event b and we we read causation into that but actually that isn't causation itself so and that that's that's that human idea of causation where you just all you need to understand causation is two events one followed by the other and if that happens enough times then you you can convince yourself that there's something causal about that but and 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 so what Hume said was that that is the world and that's all you need to know about the world but the idea of of dispositionalism is that causes are real features of the world that sort of like when you say real you mean that they're there whether or not we think about them or care about them yeah yeah so this is ontology so it's not necessarily something conscious or something you observe it's an explanation of the nature of the world so you know the bit the classic billiard ball human example one one ball hits another and the other moves that's causation from a human point of view that's all you need to know but something's happened there between the two balls that th th explains the causation. And, and I know you've had all the analogies so far of beavers and glasses <laughs> and knives and, and everything. <laughs> I haven't necessarily got another analogy to throw in there, but, but, but the, but the glass, the wine glass is, is the simplest one to think about cause a, you know, if event a push the wine glass event B it smashes on the floor. That's a human idea of the world. A dispositionist would say the, the, the that happens because the glass has got certain properties, properties of fragility, and the environment there um, with the mutual manifesting partners to create the, the breaking of the glass, the height of the bench, the, the, how, how stiff the floor was. So actually, if you change some features of that setup, um, reduce the height of the bench, made a softer ground, and you still add an event A, the push, event B wouldn't necessarily happen. So so Hume was, you know, the human explanation isn't sufficient to, to, talk, to talk about the, the real world in its fullest. Because, but if you understood fragility, then you can understand what makes things happen better, if you like. And what is the, what is the human argument against that? Or if Hume was, a, was around now and you put that to him, He'd be like, yeah, you're right, Roger. It's a good point. I, I had thought of that. Or he would, <laughs> or would he say, well, no, you know, my my argument, you know, p 
persist or I've got something to counter that. Or these are, these are, but yeah, I mean, obviously they, they couldn't have come after him because Aristotle was obviously talking about these things. So he was aware of this stuff. Yeah, Hume talked about this. I mean, he talked about it. He used the word necessary connection. So he had four in in his idea of causation. There were four. There were four parts to it. One was temporal priority, with where the cause has to come before the effect. One was um, contiguity, where the two the two events have to be close, sufficiently close enough to each other for you to believe that they're connected. The third one is constant conjunction, where you have to observe it a repeated number of times and then eventually mm. you convince yourself that there's a cause and then the fourth one was this idea of necessary connection which is basically the the nature of the cause or the mechanistic uh, explanation and Hume threw that one out and he said you don't need that actually you don't need that to explain the world um just these three things um to me will, will do um but it, i my reading of Hume is is that he was sort of sympathetic to the idea that there probably was always something there underneath. In fact, I think I finished my final sentence in my PhD was something about Hume sitting by his fire watching the flames burn and he knew he knew there was causes were real and the and the world is 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 made of of real matter and causes, and it's not just observations of regularly occurring events. But he couldn't explain that in a in a deep philosophy of causation, so he threw he threw it out. Probably complete bastardization of 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 Hume, and it's probably more neo Humean that I that in, interpretation of Hume. But you get the idea. He did in answer to your question. He, mm. he would probably say, yeah. Um, and I know I know what you're on about, but I just don't think it needs to be part of an explanation of causation. Whereas dispositions would say, no, that that is the explanation of causation, and that is all you need to know. The other stuff, like the observation of regular occurring events and RCT, is the way you access that. And again, Stephen Mumford summed it all up, which we use all the time. An RCT will give you symptoms of causation, not causation itself. In the same way, a rash on the skin is a symptom of some un- underpinning disease. We want to know about the underpinning disease. It's great to see the rash, but you could have that disease without the rash, or you could have the rash without the, the disease. Uh, but it's the it's it's the real stuff we're interested in. And so your PhD, and I'm just interested to know, and I have. I want to say I've read Stephen Timon's PhD. I have it. There's two volumes to it, and I've looked through it. But I'm always interested to know, this is a side note, but these philosophy PhDs, I mean, like you said, classically, typical healthcare PhDs are collecting data, analysing the data, having some findings. But for your PhD, there's no there's no empirical data. You're, you're, it's argumentation, right? It's, pr- in my mind, proper a proper PhD. <laughs> Proper old school, 10 times 10,000 word chapters, just developing <laughs> an, arg- an argument. And as I say, I was in, I was in a, such a luxurious position to, to be able to do that. And, and I was able to do it because I was able to register in a, depart- in a humanities department, which is which that, that's what a PhD is. But what that meant was, <laughs> and you know, that was eight or nine years work. And that meant I could spend that time 
thinking deeper than I ever thought ever about everything and and all the and all this stuff and mixed with people who spoke really in a different language you know use use words mm. that sounded like english but i'd never heard them before <laughs> and and piece together this 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 sort of thing so yeah you know there was no data collection there was nothing it was just an argument and no ethics no ethics <laughs> Brilliant. Saved about four years. No recruitment. <laughs> so, but coming, so coming off the back of that, I mean, what did we? I want to say, what did you find out? That doesn't. That, I don't know if that's the right. Well, you know, what's the what the right expression is, or what's the? Well, you know, you know yourself. The idea of a PhD is to, you know, you satisfy the external examiners if they think there's a unique contribution to our understanding of the world. And it's fairly easy to do that if you do an empirical thing. You just you just find something new in the lab or f- find a new finding in an RCT. Um, convincing somebody that um, you've made a, a contribution, a unique contribution to the world through a no- development of an argument is is in my mind a bit bit more difficult. Or new knowledge. Y- yeah, it's a new new knowledge. I mean, again, I had a bit of a uh, I. I wouldn't say it was easy, but but there was work already done on the idea of, of dispositionalism, and I sort of used some of that existing work and applied it to medicine, I, I, I guess, which created its own new challenges. It wasn't just a sort of copy-and-paste argument. It was how do you take this old stuff mm. and apply it to a complex thing called evidence-based medicine? So basically try to reinterpret the idea of evidence-based medicine and offer dispositionalism as a better ontological grounding for for evidence based healthcare, which I think you know, as as I say, the test is: do your two external examiners believe you? And luckily enough, they they, they did. Hmm. And you know, and obviously by that time we were deep into the Cause Health project, so everything sort of fitted fitted into to things nicely there. So maybe just. Talk about how the PhD featured in with Cause Health, and and you said that you were deep into Cause Health, whilst in the kind of depths of your PhD. Did one inform the other, or? Yeah, yeah, it it did. So I started, and as I say, when we started, Cause Health wasn't even a thing. I hadn't even met Ronnie. There was something called Cause Sci, which was a project that Ronnie and Stephen had started, which is causation in science, which is really what Cause Health came from. And they were starting to look at, uh, um, I think it was physics, biology, and I can't remember one. It wasn't chemistry. They were the, anyway. They were looking at three branches of science and and looking at the way that causation could could explain some of the stuff there. And then when I started a PhD and introduced the idea of healthcare and medicine, Stephen and Ronnie were then thinking, oh, hold on a minute, this is, uh, you know, medicine could be another area of core, of course, so we could look at f- physics, biology, whatever, and medicine. And then it, and then it grew enough to, to develop its own branch, and we called it CORSI, and that's what the, the Norwegian Research Funding was for, CORS Health, which is a separate thing from CORSI. So... When I, when I started my PhD, I had no idea at all what I was going to do. I just remember going to see Stephen Mumford in his, in his office for my first sort of supervision with him. 
And he said, right, what are you doing then? And I said, I don't know. All I know is there's a thing called healthcare. There's a thing called evidence-based healthcare. And I'm not sure if the two relate that well to each other. And I want to explore that. And he went, right, gone then. <laughs> and then luckily, Ronnie rode in on a, on a silver horse <laughs> and said, ah, right, there might be a way forward here. And, and, and then so, so the two sort of dovetailed <laughs> from that point, I guess. Uh, Ronnie wasn't your other supervisor, was she? No, um, she was, I call her my third supervisor. She's been there all the way through. Uh, my other supervisor initially was a guy called Tony. Oh my gosh, just forgot his second name. He was a nurse. He was a re- nurse researcher, trialist, extreme trialist, which is great because you had mm. somebody. To really test you. Yeah, yeah. And he was, a, I guess he was a bit agitated by it all, but he was open-minded enough to think, okay, well, let's, let's see what it got. Then he, he, even, he, he ended up leaving and then, then I had a second supervisor, which is Patrick Callahan, who was also a nurse, a trialist, a nurse, hardcore extremist mm. trialist who sat me down quite late stage into my PhD and said, what on earth are you thinking of saying? Why, why are you saying all this stuff? And I was like, well, because this, that, and the other. They said, you need to come up with better reasons than than, than that because for everything you've said, I can give you a stronger counter-argument as to why trials should should be, you know, classed as the best available evidence. And that just shifted the, the, the whole thing on a gear, really. So really I had to tight, tighten things up. Mm. You know, we're on trials. Like, so what do we do about trials because they're going to be a, is it the case and you said that you alluded to this before that the methods might emerge from cause health or from dispositionalism but i suppose i've got a, a few questions one is what does dispositionalism have to say about research methods but also pro, you know, methods that we use in practice you know, what are the will we be doing research differently and or doing practice differently the second thing tied to that is given that RCTs are going to probably be around whether we like them or not or want them to or not, is it the case that people will be doing RCTs differently and there are better ways to do RCTs which aren't currently being done? Or Okay, so your first one was about we're doing different methods or something like that. Yeah, so what does it have to say about methods? So, so well, tell me if... Tell me if I've got the wrong end end of the stick. Uh, so the simple answer is, we could you know continue doing all we do now, and the the idea probably is that there's there's more methods in the um, dispositionalist idea of the world, because we we say that causation is one one thing, but you need multiple methods to find the cause. Whereas the the, the Humean fre- frequentist idea is that, and, and again, the characterised by evidence-based medicine model with certain methods prioritised, certain methods de-emphasised. So they would say, actually, we get a better understanding of causation from these prioritised methods, RCTs, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and actually an observation study can tell us something, but it's, it's correlation. Uh, a lab study could tell us something, but it's mechanisms. Clinical experience can tell us something, but it's just memory and 
prone to bias. So what what that model is saying is that there's different ideas of uh, associations between events, causation, correlation, difference methods, difference making, probability, blah, blah, blah. So basically, in, in philosophy terms, what they're saying is there's, there's a plurality of, of, uh, of, of what causation is. There's multiple ideas of what causation is. Whereas what we say is, no, causation is one thing and one thing only, but you need lots of different methods to find that out. And all of those methods are it's not necessarily a prioritised one. It might be prioritised at a particular single time in a particular context, but there isn't a model where we say this is the best method to find causation. But RCTs are a good, strong, robust way of starting to point towards where causation might be. And if you get results from a lab study or an observation study or a case series that, that's saying the same pointing in the right direction, then everything's starting to add up. And then if in clinical practice you're hearing the same sort of story mm. from your patient and everything's tying in, that's when we would say, right, you're getting closer to this idea of what, of what causation is. So, you know, you can now better understand the patient's problem and what's going to help them. So more methods... In answer to your first question, more methods. In answer to your second question, of course, RCTs should continue to be done. Uh, in the way they are done now, it's the what it's the way we interpret them that that will change, and the way we position the evidence from trials against other sources of evidence, and that should hopefully would have an impact on sort of funding priorities and things. So I remember one of the course, maybe it was the last course health event in London at UCO, and I asked a question, which I'm going to, I asked you a question, which I'm going to ask you now because I wasn't satisfied with the answer back then. <laughs> uh, well, I kind of wasn't, but I was thinking, I was thinking, well, hang on. So even as you spoke then, that you're using multiple methods to converge on a single phenomenon, mm. cause. Like you're you're trying to look at this thing, which we're calling a cause, mm. from different perspectives using different methods. And I would then, I think I even said, like, but we've got things like mixed methods where you are pretty much already doing that, where you're triangulating perspectives to get some apprehension on the phenomena, to get a kind of rounded, sophisticated view of that thing. And so I guess, because when you say well, we're looking at different methods to look at the same thing, that sounds like mixed methods, but that's quite, that's, you're not talking about mixed methods. There's an underlying ontology with disposition, which isn't talked about in the mixed method stuff. Well, yeah, okay. no, I agree. Mixed methods is a, is, a, is a good example of the sort of thing that we're talking about. But I'm not saying, I wouldn't say it's a complete, it is the complete approach for, for this disposition. Because remember, at the end of the day, we're talking about clinical decision making at the shop floor level. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to restrain it just to the shop floor or individual training uh, clinical decision level because this has got public health population level impact as well but so uh, so yeah great mixed method study that you can in, uh, to, but again as long as you don't prioritize any particular method so um, so you know there's nothing that gets winds me up more than, than saying oh we did a beautiful sort of holistic mixed methods approach we did a we did a rct with a qualitative arm Right. Okay. So, so this is still a, a frequentist, regularities, Humean idea. Basically, run an RCT, 
feed into it a bit with quality things, but still whatever happens, we'll still believe the results of the RCT. And the qualitative stuff is just to sort of blend into that or add add to that. But what we're, what we're trying to do is, is look at the world and look at different ways, di- different sources of information about the world and, and trying to see what they say. So, again, the, the classic idea is RCT and mechanistic level research. So, and, and all the old examples of why trials should be better. And these are all good. This is all good stuff. And I'm not, I, I am challenging it, but I'm accepting it at the same time. So, you, you know, Dr. Spock's baby position, great, great mechanistic explanation that babies should sleep in such a way. But actually, when you systematically observe that, the results are different. And actually, Dr. Spock and his mechanistic way of thinking was killing babies, but our systematic observation is, can now be used to save babies. And that's a very strong argument to say systematic observation at a population level is better than a mechanistic explanation of why something should happen. But that doesn't it still that still doesn't explain the cause of why why, why babies uh, you know, cot deaths occur. There needs to be other, and of course there are. You know, in that in that situation, there's there's other ways of investigating that phenomenon, and eventually we get to a point where we can convince ourselves that this is the this is the case. But then that's a dynamic thing, and think the world will change, and something something else. You know, the next context could be a bit different to that. We might need to re re-examine that. So I guess all, all, all we're saying is exploit and make the most of all these sources of information, but a dispositionless ontology will allow us to make better sense of the totality of the evidence we've got rather than say, well, actually, this method said that, that method said that, we believe this method more than that method because it's controlled for risk of bias better than that. But what it's done is control for complexity but we need to know about what happens in complexity. So we need to know about the effect of other variables and how the world works on, on that. So there may be new methods, but I don't know what they look like yet. And that was, you know, midway through my PhD, one of my annual reviewers said, you know, this is, this is all well and good. And he was a philosopher, a deep philosopher, and he said, this is all well and good. But it would be better if you developed a new scientific method. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, well, yeah, it would. And I guess we will. Well, not yet. Because if it is the case that that the RCTs hang around and it's just a case of using them differently, if you like, that, that, that the evidence from RCTs will, will, is still hanging around. So either clinicians use them differently with this, it sounds naff, doesn't it, this way of thinking. It, you know, disposition is a, is a kind of framework for for clinicians to begin to think about how they weave together different forms of knowledge to make decisions with patients. But the underlying human assumptions are still built into that, to that evidence that you're using. So I suppose, isn't there a clash there? That, that isn't there some, how is it compatible that evidence that you're using has different assumptions, different ontological assumptions around causation than the framework that you're using it in? Make any sense? Well, yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. And again, you know, we we do have an answer for that. So, so, so the outcome of an RCT, even though RCTs are characteristically human, 
but a human would say, or a frequentist would, would say, same thing, event A causes event B, and we've established that sufficiently enough to for now as to, to draw some cause, causal inference from that. What we would say is, well, that that's some observations that have been made, and what it tells us is this causation could be underlying there somewhere, but we know that causes never necessitate towards an event. They only tend towards an event, so the and that tendency is influenced by other variables so i saw it happen there in the trial great it could happen with my patient but i want to see if there's other variables that are going to influence those the tendencies of those causes to create effects so great this systematic review of trials show that evidence helps for low back pain my patient's got low back pain i've got i've now got a choice i can say great i'm a human i've convinced that causation has occurred because I've seen it in the systematic review of randomized control trials. So do some exercise. And and then if you do the exercise and you get better, there you go. I've proved that humanism is right. If you do the exercise and don't get better, it doesn't matter. You're just a non-responder because it was only a probability that it would happen anyway. Whereas what a dispositionist would say is, so you didn't get better doing those exercises. And that's probably because there's some variables that are influencing the tendency of exercise to to improve your health and what i need to do through through narrative based reasoning is understand who you are and, and what things could be influencing the tendency of this thing that we've seen in this method over here and because i'm not a humanist i'm not going to say it's ever going to work i'm going to say there's a potential that it, it could work but only a tendency to, and we need to look at other variables that would affect that, which again is nothing more than what a good clinician would be doing anyway. It's just providing an uh, a, an explanation for that. Mm. And it makes me think when I've spoken to the other clinicians, uh, Kai Brinyar and Karin and obviously Matt, mm-hmm. and you know when I spoke to the, the philosophers, so Rani, Eleanor and Samantha in the first part, it was understandably it was the theory of dispositionalism was detailed kind of knowledge of the position and you know real textbook you know a real kind of a real grasp of, of the of the philosophy of it when you speak to and with the practitioners that i've spoken to there's kind of varying levels of dispositionalism which they go into so obviously you and matt you talk loads about it others like kai for example he might mention it once, but he was talking about his practice and around his practice. And like you said, it was just, it was this genuine, or like I said, or I don't know who, no one said it, this genuine interest to try to understand the individual. But you could have been listening to that episode and thought, aside from the title, like that's, that's just good practice. That's just good narrative reasoning or you know whatever you want to call it so yeah it comes yeah. back to what we we're saying before good clinicians might already be doing something a bit like this but it's not explicit yeah um, but the so if you took a strict view of evidence-based healthcare, this is what i said right at the start when i said something about the evidence-based healthcare model is is a bit too strict for our liking because if you started listening to a patient and started making some uh, narrative-based hypotheses and think actually exercise probably isn't the best thing for you. What we should do is wait and see a bit. 
then then you're in no man's land because if you if you're saying you're an evidence based healthcare worker, where's the systematic review of high quality randomized controlled trials that say actually what you've just decided is is the best compared to to exercise? But you still know there's something intuitively right about that because you discussed it, but it isn't supported by the the rules of a strict interpretation of evidence-based healthcare. Otherwise, you would just do what it says. And, and you know, Sackett's, Sackett's tripartite thing of best of clinician, best of the science, best of... If you read it, and Mark, Mark Tonelli's written about this, Sackett never meant to say that the other... There's the best of the research evidence, and that's where you establish causation and what works. The stuff about the clinician and the patient is just about communication and finding a way to allow that that stuff to work. Mm. It's not saying the best of the clinician should make causal decisions, the best of the patient should make causal de- should influence the causal decisions, and the best of the science. So, so in a strict interpretation of evidence-based medicine, you should just apply the outcomes of those prioritized studies, like Robert Herbert, etc., have been saying for years. If a patient's not responding, keep at it. Trust the evidence. You know, keep come back a week later. I'm much worse now. Doesn't matter. Carry on doing it. Karen did trust the evidence outcomes 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 so there's to do that you have to have a lot an awful lot of faith in the rules of evidence-based medicine and over the decades though like and again like Trish Grunelsch's work and team have decided there are there are cracks in that and it's a it's a it's a it's a big thing to 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 completely trust that evidence and keep pushing when there's other humanistic sort of information coming at you saying something's wrong here, something's wrong here, the true evidence-based practitioner would sort of filter out that and say, well, no, this is the evidence, this is how it is, blah, 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 let's keep keep going, keep going, keep going. But that's not the that's not the behaviour of what we think as a as a good clinician. And Kai and Brian Brian Bloom, who I think you're talking too soon, are people who are telling just telling you about their practice and then we're looking going yeah that's you know we could explain what you're doing better from a dispositionist point of view than we could do from a frequentist human point of view uh and then the debate is okay so what which is which is best then should should you stop that person practicing like that because it's hard to explain from the evidence-based medicine point of view or should we find a better explanation for it the the other thing to add on to that is to not take a strict interpretation of what evidence-based healthcare is. And my argument is it's a binary thing. You're either you either do what evidence-based healthcare says or you don't. You you, you can't you can't be a human and, and just have a little bit of what it's got to offer. You either are or you aren't. So if you are going to take if you are going to sort of take on board the other the other sources of information then there needs to be a better theoretical explanation of how that works in a, in a professional in a discipline that has got to justify itself in the way it behaves because people are getting around it right so 
So there are people who are, who who would identify with evidence-based healthcare and are pretty much bending the rules to suit the patient. People are finding a way, like the clinicians we've spoken to, they are they would never say, well, I'm not evidence-based or I'm not evidence-formed. They are utilising evidence. So what I'm saying is that people have made it work kind of pragmatically. They've made, well, listen, it's, it's in, in its truest, purest sense, it's impractical, doesn't meet the needs of the patient and the complex clinical environment. Mm. Mm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it this way. And that's kind of what I do. I'm like, oh, it's ridiculous. And so, so people have found a way around it. And I suppose, yeah, yeah. Is it, is it inadvertently people are, inadvertently people are doing dispositionism possibly that's one option but i think what struck me is what you said is that but even people are kind of fudging it a bit like me you're saying that like you said you can't it's the kind of the human kind of route to vbm right That, that that kind of ontology where you can't on the one hand say i'm kind of human but then I suppose what disposition does is give it that foundation. Yeah. Which it doesn't, which without it, it kind of like you said, you're either fudging it, bending the rules, contradicting yourself. There isn't that coherency, that coherent underpinning theory. Yeah. So it provides an explanation of the world where you don't have to be fudging it to do your best, best practice, best person-centered healthcare. Mm-hmm. So... Which is why, sorry, which is why some people like me, when I you come, you contact you, like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Like I kind of get this. It's, you know, those there'll be some which will be like, this is completely. I've, I've never heard a practice described in this way, or others uh, like, oh yeah, this yeah. seems to resonate. I'm kind of doing this without me. I, it's not the same kind of detail. I haven't thought about it in this way, but there's something which certainly for me it resonated, and I didn't know a bloody thing about it until I you know, met you lot. Yeah, well, as as I say, that's all it is. It's it's an attempt to try and explain what we're doing in in a better way. So what we do is is more justified, but still is informed by the evidence. And you know, I I, I saw something. I saw um a a tweet from Evie Martin that uh, again made made sense, and it said something like like you've just said, you know. D- sort of, I do this stuff anyway, I sort of read the evidence, but I listen to the patient anyway. Why do we need a different ontology f- for that? So so our response would be, well, providing a better ontological explanation, a better a better explanation of how the world works will not only justify what you're doing, but, but also enhance and open up new directions for how we can work and how we can better un- mm. understand the world as well. Rather than you going through a career where you thought, I've read a trial result, I'll sort of half believe it and tweak it a bit. Anyway, you know, what, what even is that? You, you can't really tweak the uh, what the conclusions of a systematic review if it's fairly conclusive. You can't really tweak that. You either do it or you don't in the evidence-based healthcare model. So all the tweaking and fudging we're doing is the humanistic person-centered medicine and healthcare, but it can't be fully explained away by the evidence-based healthcare model as it stands with its frequentist, regularities, human underpinning on, on ontology. And all we're saying is it, we, we've got, we've got a, different ontology that can explain what you do better that preserves all the good stuff that the science has got to offer 
and includes other scientific ways of understanding the world. And by that, again, I mean that that, that clinic, the, the, the conversations with patients, the talking with the patient about have I got have I got this right? You know, this is my assumption about what you've just said. Can we just talk through this and see if we've got that right? That that is essentially a scientific process because you're developing a hypothesis, you're testing it in a very controlled way, and you're coming to some conclusion. You were going to say a better way, weren't you? I was. <laughs> so, so then it leads me Value on judgment. to say, But then it leads me on to, you know, who, how do we judge whether it is better? How is it, the, is it, it's intuitive, it seems, a better way. It's more explanatory, it's more sophisticated, it accounts for complexity. But a bit like what constitutes a good, an expert clinician I think I forget one of the definitions could have been Rosenfield. It's, it's that that gets better outcomes. Forget about all the stuff in the middle. It's 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 you know it, the proof is in the pudding in a way. And and I've asked a few people this, and and it's a there isn't. I imagine I don't know how I don't know how you're gonna. I'm gonna ask you anyway. So how do you test dispositionism with a traditional EBM approach? <laughs> Exactly. Uh, this one of the first course health meetings we had, and Matt Matt Lowe came across. In fact, Stephen was there as well. Stephen Timon was there, and um, I think it was one of Matt's first little presentations that he did. We talked we talked him into to saying something about it, and he was talking about similar things: person centered care, listening to the patient, dispositionalism helps explain this a bit better. And there was some medic guy there, and he and he stood up at the end and he said. Is, yeah, it's, it's very good what you're saying. It sort of makes sense to my experience and practice. <laughs> All we need to do now is a randomised controlled <laughs> trial to see if your <laughs> your method is better than the other. And he was he was deadly serious. And Matt sort of laughed, and we all laughed at the irony of of of, of that. But but that's where we are. That's you know I, that's how we're conditioned, and that's how we're trained. Now, and and again, so we just had the recent book review. Um, which which asked the similar question at the end. How how do you? Va- I've got it in front of me. Yeah. What I can't, what was his terminology? How do we validate that? So it says, and they they were talking more about the causal story, mm. and that was mm. another one of my questions. You know, how can we tell a good causal understanding from a bad one? And you know, why why is it the case that we're privileging the patient's understanding of their own situation over the clinician's? which is kind of what EBM did. It was the clinician was the dominant individual in that relationship yeah, and all the yeah. knowledge. So that was one thing. But we were talking now about a related idea about, well, how do we test it? Because it's a fair question. Like, imagine funders and it's absolutely policyholders. Like, okay, right, yeah, you lot. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea. You know, we haven't got time to read your PhD, Roger. Convince us otherwise. Yeah. Well, no, it's a massive question. I mean, how do how we do how do we know EBMs work? There's been some massive success stories from from the traditional strict human evidence based medicine model. Massive success. You know, I remember hearing Ben Goldacre on Radio Four some some years ago, and it was the end of a year thing, and they had some celebrities on, and they were saying, "What's the best?" I think the question was like, "What what's one of the world's greatest inventions?" And they and they were talking about the aeroplane and stuff. And Ben Goldacre said, uh, "A systematic review. A systematic review saves more lives than than blah blah blah." And it, there's absolute truth in that, you know, empirically, 
uh, you can track that in some areas, in some areas. But, you know, where are we? let's compare where we are now to 1992 and look at something like the global burden of musculoskeletal disease or the rate of uh, a non-communicable diseases or type 2 diabetes, all these things that have, despite evidence-based medicine, have, have, have continued to, to get worse. And somebody might say, well, hold on, if it wasn't for evidence-based medicine, they would have got worse even to a greater magnitude. Uh, who knows? Mm -hmm. How do you measure that? How do you measure the success of evidence-based medicine? Uh, that's, a big, that's a massive thing. So what Sackett and Guy and the likes would say, and or, or, you know, great proponents now, is you know that's almost impossible to answer. We do keep a track on on big disease patterns and epidemiology. Of course, of course, we do. Mm. It's difficult to say what role this this model is playing in that. But we, but what we, what we have got is a really logical, robust, scientific model here, and it's the best we've got. So what's the alternative? And I guess we could argue the same. We say, well, here's an alternative, and it it includes everything you've got to offer, but a bit more as well. Um, and as long as we've got some caveats around it, like, you know, again, this is this is one of the straw men arguments. This, what we're saying with cause health and dispositionism is nothing about clinical freedom and, and doing what you want or, or acquiescing to patient needs. That's not what this is about at all. It's not, it's not like here's a systematic review that says intervention X is better, but the patient wants some massage, so let's give them massage. That's not person-centred care. It's not personalised care. It's not what Cause Health is about. It's about mm. trying to establish what what the context sensitivity and the complexity of an individual decision, which could be at a one-to-one -one thing or at a public health level, and make the best decision based on multiple sources of information, which aren't necessarily from methods that have controlled for risk of bias. <sighs> So the second kind of related point from the book review was about the causal story and whether or not it's just in the eye of the beholder, either the clinician or the patient, that how do you judge? So I think I had a few questions like this early, early on with Rani, that, that you're sitting with a patient, there's a conversation going on, there are things which, for, for whatever reason, you pick up on as being causally important, the patient... You, you they, they respond and they start talking more about that and together you've constructed this causal story what is the objective truth in that what was the right causal story like it might just be that you decided to talk about what they had for breakfast because that's subconsciously what you were thinking about do you know what i mean so so what's the objective truth to that causal story and how is it judged this is what i think the what i was thinking and the, and the reviewer was possibly saying yeah, yeah. I mean, the the idea of an objective truth is another book, um, <laughs> another podcast. But what is the, what is the best? Yeah, yeah. What is the best decision at that point in time, given the information we've got? How how do you how do you judge that? Well, you know, again, that that's all that's all contained within the idea of narrative based medicine, empathy, compassion, working with the patient. You know, and there are tools. We've got the vector diagram. We've got you mind maps, checking with the patient if this is what they mean. If this is, does it think you? How about trying this? What are the barriers to to trying this? Uh, the, the, again, back to this thing about what's the validity of, uh, you know, prioritising the patient's 
side of the story. There's something very humanistic and civil about that. So if, if I'm a clinician, I've got a patient, or if there's just two people, person A and person B, and person B says they're hungry, then who's the best, who's, who do we trust most there in that relationship? Hold on, I've, I've got more experience of hunger than you and I'm telling you you're not hungry. You're saying you are hungry. What's the objective <laughs> truth there? That, that, that's, that's human, that's humanity at play. So um, I might establish something else about that. Why are you hungry? Well, I haven't eaten for three days. Well, that makes sense. But there was a trial there that said uh, most people only don't eat for one day or something, so I don't believe you. Um, no, honestly, I haven't eaten for three days. Right, have you tried some food? Okay, I'll try some food to feel better, yeah. you know. So, so we, we're not... <laughs> We're not, again, acquiescing just to believe everything a patient says. This is narrative-based medicine, working with a patient to try and establish what's the best way forward that, given what we know from different sources of evidence. We'd really like you to do some exercise because, you know, we have got an indication that that this, this is a good thing, but it might not be the best thing for you right now at this time, or we might want to find ways of working towards that. What do you think? You know, how can we do this? Um, I want some massage. Well... You know, there's, there's reasons why that might not be, you, you know, the, the longer term solution management for what we're doing at the at the moment, and just what we do, you know, just just the stuff we do. But the, there's only a small percentage of that process that I can mm. explain by evidence based medicine, and the and the rest is either you just say, well, it's what's always been done, or it's random, or something. Or you say actually, there's a there's an ontological explanation for everything you're you're saying there, uh, which can which can justify and support the clinical decisions you're making. So, what is the judge? I mean, what, what's the? Because don't you slip into relativism if it's the case that any story that you construct with an individual about their problem, so maybe there isn't there isn't a standard by which to judge that story against, other than other than it satisfies the clinician. They're like, yeah, that seems all right. Satisfies the patient. They're like, yeah, that seems all right. Or it's got a better outcome or, or not a better outcome, but an outcome which is which which is satisfactory to both. Like, yeah, I did recover from back pain or whatever it might be. What makes a good causal understanding? Is it just the pragmatics? Well, it's the causal understanding which ultimately led to to an outcome which is desired by both or something like that? Oh yeah, I mean, if there's that line of reasoning there, and there's, there's the, you can you can explain each part of that, and and you know some of this, some again the basics of clinical reasoning. So I suppose if we if we say the opposite of all this is randomness. So clinician sits down with a patient and they say, right, I think we should do some some ultrasound. Why do you say that? I don't know. Let's just do it. <laughs> um, oh, it worked. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean because because causes are only tendencies and they can or can't work and and there's randomness in the world. An outcome is not necessarily a short term outcome like that. It's not necessarily the best way to judge if something is right. So so the the logic and the rationality and the reasoning behind the discussion and the decision making. Well, why 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 do you think that? Well, I think that because you said that we discussed this. How about trying this? 
uh, okay, but I'm a bit worried about this. Okay, well, let's do this. So there's, you know, there's there's logic and argument formation throughout. So it is reasoning. So I, I, I suppose one test is how rational and a reason that discussion was in terms of not just pure empirical evidence, but but emerging evidence from the 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 conversation and the, and the narratives. Of course, out, outcomes are are some sort of measure and. Would again back to the big picture? Wouldn't it be good if we could track where well, we do track epidemiology well? But if we could start to associate that with changes in 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 healthcare behaviour, but that that's incredibly difficult. But so, so so I sit with the patient and we have a conversation and we get I, we get we come to a call a kind of mutual cause and understanding about their situation. You sit with the same patient, have a kind of completely different conversation because you're picking up on different cues. This is like different kind of relationship, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. And you've got your own cause and understanding, which you develop with them. They are competing causal theories as to how this person is, how they are, and what you guys are going to do about it. They can both be right. Is that's what I'm saying? They can both they can both be true. I mean that that's characteristic of what com- complexity is. You know, we 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 don't go into clinical encounters and say right there's 17 variables here we've got to deal with and that they are these <laughs> blah 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 blah. We know our near how complex the situation is and there are there's not necessarily again although we're schooled and coached and tutored into ways of thinking there is an explanation there is a single answer for things low back pain Achilles tendinopathy whatever we know ourselves that different things can help people in 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 the same way and again that that's something that's characteristic of dispositionalism we we don't believe there's a one cause one effect thing so the bigger question of therapeutic effectiveness mm. moves from something like uh, and i'm not necessarily advocating this as immediate change in in the whole world's research program but if we say things like well Rather than test the effectiveness of an of a of a therapeutic intervention, why not test the effectiveness of clinician patient behaviour? And in some ways, that's what things like you know Jeremy Hoek's empathy trials and and, and studies are looking at. It's, it's not necessarily the intervention; it's the empathy of the doctor that's creating improved clinical outcomes. So why don't we say okay, we don't. We, Let's change our mindset from thinking is a is a certain modality effective or not for a condition, but rather say, okay, is the way we interact with patients something that will improve overall health outcomes? And actually, the intervention you do and I do, so what? We could do completely different things, but there's been something that's created a, a therapeutic effective behavior and, out, and outcome we've gone all over the shop haven't we <laughs> <laughs> talked about a lot of things is there anything you want to talk about that you haven't put across or you want to that you want to finish on or you want to hammer home or some big messages you want to kind of pump out there takeaways Again, I suppose the, the takeaways are, for me, as a as a clinician, 
continue to think about your practice, reflect on what you do and and ask why you do things and ask the, you know, the uh, not just the ontological, what, what is the nature of what's going on here and why do I believe the world is as it is, but the epistemological ones as well. Why do, why, why do I believe this to be the case? And try and try and explain your clinical practice as best as you can. As observers of research and education, I just think we should carry on thinking about you know no no not even the proponent the hardest proponents of evidence based medicine or whatever has ever said right this is it this is the end of the world now we've reached we've reached what we're getting to it all started in in Greece a couple of millennia ago. We tried this, we tried this, then there was the Middle Ages, then there was the Industrial Revolution, then there's a scientific revolution, and now we're here. So we've got it, you know. This we're only at we're only at a part of history and there's a whole history ahead of us. We've got to we've got to keep questioning what we're doing, asking what we're doing, and and thinking, you know, what well, where do we where do we go from here? Hmm. So we've got this beautiful thing called called evidence-based medicine that's providing so much information and, and and so where do we go from here? You know, well, let's bring the patient, let's bring the humans back into to the story and see what happens. And so where does this positionism go from here? Like what would you like to see if you had infinite resources? I, th- I think we need to address some of the challenging questions that have that have come from where we are so far. Like just like you've been asking, like any any observer and commentator does, how do we validate this? How how do we how do we make this a bit clearer? How how do we position some of the stuff from evidence based medicine clearer and, and more readily with the stuff we're talking about? And so I, th- I think where we go from here, you know, there's not, it's, it's not so much about developing the ontology. The ontology is there. It's been there for 2000 years. It's just, it's just, how do we, ex- how do we relate the modern world to that? So half of this stuff is about c- communication and clarity. And we, you know, we're, we're still learning about, about this. I think there's something about what, what, what a scientific method is going to look like in 50 years. How do we get, how do we drill down to the nature of the world in a more human centered way? And I think the other thing is to, to have a a bigger conversation about research in terms of embracing complexity and not controlling for complexity. Cool. Thanks, Roger. Gosh. It's like doing three rounds with Mike Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great. Cheers, Roger. All the best. All right. Cheers, Ollie. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.